Well, that is a truth that we need to walk in. And uh, I don't know, uh, it, it doesn't feel like there's too many mighty fortresses uh, around us right now. The things that we have come to depend on, the things that we have come to rely on, the, thing, the assumptions that we've made have sort of crumbled around us. And so here we find ourselves in quarantine, in this sort of shelter in place. And we wonder, where does our hope come from? Where does our strength come from? And so when we can come together as a church and declare our God is a mighty fortress, I hope that that encourages you today. I'd like to lead you through some uh, of our prayers of the people talking about a new heaven and a new earth. And when you see it come up in red on your screen, I'm just going to invite you to corporately share that together. And so we pray, we are glad and rejoicing you, O oh God. We, we draw from the well of your salvation and pray that even as, as it were, you may fulfill the story of your love. Though the world has been gripped by trouble since the early days, you've given us a vision of a day beyond the fear, a day when the heavens and the earth will begin again, a time when all creation will live in peace and people will long enjoy the fruits of their labors. And as we pray for a new heaven and a new earth, we are, uh, uh, it's cutting off a mind, among us, those beyond those doors who are in deep need and of your healing touch. And we pray who who live in places, those who live in places of grief and of need and of, uh, and of want. Lord, Together, Lord, have, have mercy, mercy on us. us. And we pray for those who are unemployed and those who fear layoff or termination and all those struggling with a burden in the workplace. Together, Lord, hear our prayer. Help us. Help us to hold to that vision when our world is shaken. Strengthen us for the telling of your truth and for the keeping to your path. Come, Lord Jesus, come. Amen. Well, I want to share a, a few thoughts. Um, in 1942, there was an artist, a graphic artist from Pittsburgh by the name of J. Howard Miller, and he was hired by the Westinghouse Company's War Production Coordinating Committee to create a series of inspirational posters for the war effort. And one of these posters became a famous poster and it was marked with the words, we can do it. And it was the image in years later was, she was later to be called Rosie the Riveter. Do you, do you remember this photo? Do you remember? Yes, the, the, the strong armed woman who was uh, supporting the war effort. And uh, let me find, I, I got a picture of it here, hopefully. Let's see. Yep. Um, share. There she is. Here's what's interesting about that, that photo, though. Um, 
Rosie the Riveter became this cultural icon for for so many during World War II, representing these women uh, and men, but women who began to work uh, in the factories and in the shipyards during the war efforts. And so many of whom produced the munitions and um, the war supplies. But in 1943, there was another version of this that got created by uh, Norman Rockwell. Um, through the Saturday Evening Post, and it's the one that actually received mass distribution. And her lunch pail reads, Rosie, which quickly was associated with a national hit song by Red Evans, and it was covered by many in 1942. And the Post then loaned the image to the U.S. Treasury Department during the war for use on many of the war bond drives. It was meant to boost morale uh, within the company, specifically the Westinghouse company, um, and, uh, and the We Can Do It poster was displayed to the Westinghouse employees in the Midwest during a two-week period in February 1943, and then, oddly enough, it, it vanished for the better part of four decades. And they occurred to me as I'm going through sort of the, the history of it, it occurred to me that even now we're at war. We're together as a world, we're at war against the spread of a pandemic. We're at war trying to recover an economy. We're experiencing trade wars. We're experiencing wars against oppressive regimes. I would even contend that in the United States, we're experiencing a kind of civil war politically and ideologically within our own country. And maybe the one thing that we can learn from this time is, is how out of control we've been all along. See, we want to think that government could provide and protect us. And we believe that hard work can save us, pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps. We've thought that education could somehow deliver us. We've, we've kind of tapped advanced technology to provide for us what was once unimaginable. And all of those things are still true, but now it doesn't seem to matter how enlightened we are, how progressive we are, how advanced we are, how wealthy we are, how educated we are, what we've come to realize in this epoch of time is we can't do it. And what this time in our life has done is we've been exposed as the vulnerable people that we've been all along. It was just this week, I spoke with a friend, a friend who graduated from college, who got, who I helped, I was officiated his wedding 10 years ago. They live in the Houston suburbs and the woodlands, and he's been caring for his two parents at separate hospitals as both mom and dad fight this coronavirus. And I, I've been praying because he's been posting on Facebook for two weeks. And on Tuesday, I had a conversation with them and I said, I just want you to know, ever since your first post, I've been praying for you and my heart goes out to you. Um, and he said, well, I really, really appreciate this. And this was on Tuesday. And he says, but just this morning, I haven't posted yet. My dad went to go be with Jesus in heaven. And I, 
obviously tried to comfort him and console him, but it, it, it made me weep because here his parents have been in quarantine and they've not been allowed. He and his sister sat by the bedside of his dad and he, they held his hand as he took his last breath. But then I asked him the question, does your mom even know? And he says, actually, we're here now. And I've just explained that mom, the dad, didn't make it. See, these are people in the woodlands. These are people of means. These are people who are well-educated. These are people who are a strong family and God-fearing folk. And none of us are immune. So the question becomes, where does our hope come from when we all become exposed? And so I want to just challenge your vision for your life. Proverbs 29, 18 says, where there is no vision, the people perish. Or another translation of that would say, where there's no vision, the people cast off restraint. And I would say it this way, for many of us, we bought into a vision that we can do it on our own. And maybe we might turn to God in those moments where we feel like we can't manage something. But that's hardly a vision for Christian living that produces any kind of sustaining fruit or internal change. See, we respond to vision because it builds a bridge uh, that helps us cross difficulties from stagnation to a desired outcome or future. And without it, goals and ideals sort of fade away. I tend to think that people end up chasing carrots uh, more than they chase a God-shaped vision. And so whatever vision we've had has sort of been challenged with this limitation, this, this, this exposed vulnerability. See, I think our world isn't lacking in vision. We're overwhelmed with marketing, with thoughts and images for an ideal state for your life. And it's not all bad because it allows us to grow in some area or to some degree. And many people want to share a vision for your life so that they can sell you a subscription. They don't always have our best interests. And so I would go on to say, with too many visions, we become paralyzed. And we can create a preferred and ideal states of our own lives, but then look around with disappointment at our nation, at our culture, and it points to something still deeper. Something greater is out there, but it seems maybe just out of reach. And so my prayer for Easter, as I think about your names during the week, as I think about our relationship, as I think about our community, that we would have a vision for new life, how to find it, how to orient our life around it, and how it can be offered to others. And so I want to share just a glimpse of Jesus's final moments. We've been going through a series called The Dirt Under Jesus's Nails. Uh, and it's the idea that we wanted to explore the humanity of Christ, not just the deity of Christ. Wanted to say in every way he walked human steps so that he actually understands our very same struggles. But there's this moment where he's hanging on a cross, and he's uh, flanked by two other thieves who are with him. And that one of the thieves who hung there hurled insults at him. And I have to just say, when I read scripture, I always like to 
I always like to put myself a little bit more in the protagonist role, the heroic role, the one who makes good choices. But if I'm honest, sometimes I need to put myself in the antagonist's role. But the one thief with antagonism says, aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebukes him and he says, don't you fear God? I mean, these guys are just hanging there on the cross. Since you are under the same sentence, we are punished justly. For, what, for we are getting what our deeds deserve, but this man has done nothing wrong. Then Jesus says, remember me when you come. Uh, oh, then he says to Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus answers him, truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. <laughs> it is possible that the thief being crucified next to Jesus was able to grasp the concept that life was not ending for Jesus even though they had just gone through the same torture, but that Jesus was somehow transcending the physical world into an eternal promise from which he came to provide for all humanity. And the thief would become one of the first to enter into paradise by grace through faith in Jesus. And Jesus told the thief that he would be in paradise with him because he accepted and believed in the Son of God in that moment. Clearly, this is an example that a person is saved by grace through faith than by works. Those who are persecuted and condemned, Jesus would um, have the people believe. Now, let me just make three observations about this scenario that plays out on, as Jesus has this kind of final moments on earth. The first thing we see is that death is inevitable, but it's also needed. Let me explain what I mean by that. At the end of the day, all three of these people on the cross die a physical death. No matter what we do in our physical life, it will end. One out of one die. It's a pretty strong statistic that we can bank on. And we've said goodbye to too many people and many people too soon. And we have to embrace that so that we can then begin to ask the right questions. When, when we do, we come to the same conclusion as one of the thieves on the cross. Where does my hope come from? Who am I living for and to what end? See, I have to admit, as much as I want to like to see myself as the second thief with humility, I find myself sometimes hurling not my insults, but my expectations of God to somehow help, provide, show up, respond. Death is inevitable physically. We know that. But if we're ever to enter what I would call a portal of transformation, personal death or emotional, spiritual death, personal surrender is needed. In the best way imaginable, though not the easiest, the gospel disorients us so that we can then begin to reorient our new life in and through Christ Jesus. And in every pursuit in life, we'll inevitably discover our own human limits. We'll run out of being in control and we'll run out of our own human strength. 
It's in these moments where we have the opportunity to surrender to the one who remains in control all along. So death is inevitable, though sometimes it's needed. Second thing I would say is new life is available. Look at the distinct responses. One thief challenges Jesus' authority, essentially saying, get us out of this mess. And admittedly, this sounds like my own prayer at times. When we do this, we miss the chance to what I would say is name our vice, name our fear, name our pride, name our offense. But imagine a life where you don't have to always be right or to win. God wants to save us to the extent that we're willing to confess and come clean, not just get me out of this mess, Lord Jesus. The second thief sees his need. You can hear the remorse in his voice. He says to the other, don't you even fear God? We're getting what we deserve. But many, many people look at God for help and for strength, for provision. But this guy looks to Jesus simply for mercy. He's surrendered. This thief believes death is not the end of the story. This is where we get our good news. And so death is not only inevitable and needed, it's also something that new life we find is available. But the third thing I would simply say out of this snapshot in the life of Christ is that eternity has already begun. He says, this day, not tomorrow, this day you'll be with me in paradise. No chance to serve, no chance to sort of build a spiritual resume, no chance to be better, no chance to get his act together, no chance to go through confirmation, no chance to be baptized. His declaration wasn't predicated on performance. He just simply says, remember me, not in my fear, not in my shame, not in my addiction, not in my offense. Remember me and my belief, my confession, my desire for your mercy. Remember me. That, friends, is the gospel. That's why it's such good news. And so life for the ages is available now when we realize that while we can't, Jesus can. We can't do it. Jesus can. I started out by telling you about Rosie the Riveter, the one who's saying, we can do it. And it became the anthem for empowerment. It was buried for 40 years. And then in the 80s, it gained traction because it became sort of this anthem for equality and, 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 and a feminist movement about, um, we can do it, except for in all cases, we can't. We still can't. We still need equality but we simply can't do it on our own. There's another lady that I came to know, not Rose, uh, Rosie the Riveter, but she was Ruby the Welder. Now you've probably never heard of Ruby the Welder, but Ruby was my grandma Ruby. And she didn't live a self-empowered life like she could do it on her own. In fact, she was a young mom with a four and a seven-year-old, and she was dealing with an abusive husband. 
she was dealing with a husband who had mental illness and alcoholism, and she had to send her kids away. And it was in the 1940s that she went to work during the war in the shipyards in Hunter's Point in San Francisco. She became a welder. And it was there God brought my grandpa George into her life. See, she had no pretense at that point that she could do it on her own, but it also taught her how to receive God's care, how to receive God's provision, because human strength had failed her. Circumstances had made it impossible and, and made her extremely vulnerable. And what she learned through that dark season was that she learned the gift of surrender, as well as hard work. She learned to trust that God sees even in the darkest of times. There's a video that I'd like to share with you uh, just to celebrate what I think God is wanting to do. And this video is a man you might recognize who narrates this piece uh, but in this piece, it's, it's the voice of Billy Graham, uh, who also played a very strategic role in our family life. And it was during that time that uh, uh, he was doing a, a, a crusade in the Cow Palace in the 1950s, where my dad had a chance to make a decision for Christ. But listen to these words. I'm sorry. Yes, Jesus Christ is alive. He rose from the dead and that day, that Easter Sunday morning, that first Easter, when Mary and Mary Magdalene and Salome went to the grave expecting to anoint a dead body. They saw the angel sitting there. And they said, where is Jesus? The angel said, he is not here, he is risen. I submit to you tonight that that's the greatest news the world has ever heard. He is not here. He has conquered the grave. He's alive. And ladies and gentlemen, I believe that there's more proof that Jesus Christ rose from the dead than almost any other fact in Roman history. I don't believe there's a fact in ancient history today so well proven as the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But even if there was no proof, no historical proof, no scientific proof, and there is, I would still believe because I believe this book is God's inspired word and the whole early church went up and down the country preaching the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That was the thing that shook the Roman Empire. That a man had risen from the dead. That he was alive. That death could not hold him. Christ is alive. He's a living savior. I want to invite you uh, just to stand with me. I know that seems kind of weird, but sometimes we get a little, uh, 
a little uh, passive and just as, a, uh, as an offering, we're just going to stand together and I'd like to just have you uh, pray these words with me as we have a prayer for mission and then we're going to sing again. And so uh, the world is full of sickness, isolation, and uncertainty. Oh, and in red, if you could. <laughs> oh, sorry. I thought I shared my screen. I can't keep up with this craziness here. Okay. Uh, should I uh, mute? No, I don't get my Sorry about that. The world is full of sickness, isolation, and uncertainty. Together? <laughs> we want to help, but we don't know where to start. We, we long to be a vibrant, healing community of faith. My heart is full of turmoil and unrest. I need your power inside of me. He is risen. He is risen. Man, 